Part Two, Chapter Four of The Gambler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Gambler by Catherine Cecil Thurston. Chapter Four. To the last day of his life, that evening, with its horde of harassing and unfamiliar sensations, remained stamped upon Milbank's mind, and not least among the unpleasant recollections was the visit of Molyneux and the dinner at which he himself unwillingly played host. It may have been that his usually placid susceptibilities had undergone a strain that rendered him oversensitive, but whatever the cause, the atmosphere diffused by the great man jarred upon him. In his eyes it seemed little short of callous that one who had just passed sentence of death upon his patient could so far remain unmoved as to partake with relish of the dinner set before him and comment with affable appreciation upon the quality of the patient's wines. Milbank spoke little during the course of that meal. Try as he might to enact the part entrusted to him, his thoughts persistently wandered to the room upstairs with its doomed sufferer and its anxious watchers as yet mercifully ignorant of the verdict that had been pronounced. But if the host was silent, the guest made conversation. Gallagher was assiduous in his attentions to the man who, in his eyes, stood for the attainment of all ambition. And Molyneux, under the unlooked-for stimulus of good if homely food and wines that even as an epicure he admitted to be remarkable, was graciously pleased to accept the homage of his humble colleague and to display a suave glimpse of the polished wit for which he was noted in society. His expressions of regret were perfectly genuine when at last the sound of wheels on the gravel of the drive broke in upon his discourse and Gallagher deprecatingly drew out his watch the way of the world mr milbank he murmured as he rose our pleasantest acquaintances and the soonest i must wish you good-bye with many thanks for your delightful hospitality so far as our poor friend is concerned he added in a correctly altered tone dr gallagher may be relied upon to do everything in a case like this where physical pain is recurrent and violent we can only have recourse to narcotics we have already allayed the suffering consequence of my examination, and you may rely upon some hours of calm. For any subsequent contingency, Dr. Gallagher has my instructions. Of course, if you wish me to have one more glimpse at him before I go. But Milbank, who had also risen, held out his hand mechanically. Oh, no, he said quietly. No, thank you. I don't think we will trouble you any further. It has been a great satisfaction to have obtained your... your opinion. Molyneux waved his hand magnanimously. Don't mention it, he murmured. My regret is deep that I have been of so little avail. Goodbye again, Mr. Milbank. It has been an honor as well as a pleasure to meet you. He smiled blandly and added the last remark as Gallagher solicitously helped him into his fur-lined traveling coat then still suavely genial he passed out of the dining-room towards the hall door gallagher hurried after him but in passing milbank he paused i'll be back in an hour mr milbank i'm just gone as far as carrigmore with dr molyneux to get an additional supply of morphia milbank nodded silently 
and in his turn stepped into the hall. When the two men had entered the waiting vehicle, when Molyneux had waved a courtly farewell and the coachman had gathered up the reins, he turned and slowly began to mount the stairs. Instantly his foot touched the landing, Mrs. Ashland darted from the shadowy corridor. "'What news?' she asked agitatedly. "'Oh, Mr. Milbank, what news? The suspense has been dreadful.' Her voice trembled. Tears came very easily to Mrs. Ashland, and her habitual attitude of mourning had heretofore irritated Milbank. But now her thin face and faded black garments came as a curiously welcome contrast to the bland affluence, the genial complacent superiority, of Molyneux. He turned to her with a feeling of warmth. "'Forgive my delay, Mrs. Ashland,' he said gently. "'One is never in a hurry to impart bad news. Dr. Milleneau holds out no hope, not a shadow of hope.' There was a pause. Then Mrs. Ashland made a tragic gesture. "'Oh, the children!' she murmured. "'The poor, poor children! What will become of them?' "'The children will be provided for.' Milbank said hastily. Then, without giving her time for question or astonishment, he went on again. "'Don't say anything of this to Clodagh,' he enjoined. "'She must have these last hours in peace.' "'Certainly, certainly. Poor Dennis! Poor Dennis! I always said he would have an unfortunate end. But go in and see him, Mr. Milbank. Clodagh is in the room.' Milbank silently acquiesced and moved slowly down the corridor. At the door of her father's room he found Nance still patiently watchful. He paused, arrested by his new sense of obligation, and looked down into the upturned, wistful little face. "'What are you doing here, Nance?' he asked kindly. She made a valiant attempt to conjure up her pretty, winning smile, but her lips began to tremble. "'I don't know,' she said shyly and softly. Then, in a sudden burst of confidence, she stepped close to him. "'Claude doesn't like me to go in,' she murmured. "'She thinks it makes me sad to see father, and I don't know where to go. I'd be in Hannah's way, in the kitchen, and I don't like being with Aunt Fan, and—and and I'm frightened to be by myself. There's a horrid sort of feel in the house.' Her dark eyes searched Milbank's face appealingly, and with a sensation of pity and protection he stooped and took one of her cold, limp hands. "'You may come in.' he said gently. It is very lonely out here. I think we can make Clodagh understand. Without hesitation her fingers closed round his in a movement of confidence and gratitude, and together they passed into the room where Ashland lay peacefully under the influence of the narcotic administered by Molyneux. By Gallagher's orders the nurse, who had been deprived of her necessary rest in the morning, had retired to her room again in preparation for the night and only Clodagh was in attendance. Having quietly closed the door, Milbank halted hesitatingly, expecting a flood of questions. But to his intense surprise she did not even glance in his direction. She sat motionless and pale, her eyes on her father's face, her attitude stiff and almost defiant. He wondered for a moment whether by the power of instinct she had divined Molyneux's verdict or whether through some source unknown to him the news of it had already reached her. With a sense of trepidation he tightened his fingers round Nance's small hand 
and drew her silently into a corner of the room. For more than an hour the three watchers sat regarding their patient. No one attempted to speak. No one appeared to have anything to say. Once or twice Mrs. Ashland flitted agitatedly in and out of the room, but none of them took heed of her presence. Occasionally a clock struck in the silent house, or a cinder fell from the fire, causing them all to start nervously. But except for these interruptions the quiet was preternatural. It was with a throb of relief at his heart that Milbank at last caught the sound of Gallagher's horse trotting up the avenue, and knew by the shutting of the hall door that the doctor had entered the house. He walked into the sick-room a few minutes later, and with a casual nod to all present moved at once to the bed. Bending over Ashland he felt his pulse, then glanced significantly at Milbank, who had risen on his entrance. "'I think we must inject a stimulant,' he said. "'The pulse is a little weak.' With a faint sound of consternation Clodagh stood up. "'Oh, he's not worse,' she said. "'Dr. Gallagher, he's not worse.' Gallagher looked at her, and his expression changed. The distress of a pretty girl is always difficult to resist. "'No, Miss Ashland,' he said kindly. "'Now, you see, he has gone through a lot. We must expect him to be weak.' Clodagh looked relieved, though the alarm still lingered in her eyes. "'Of course,' she said. "'Yes, of course. Is there anything I can do?' Gallagher glanced at her again. "'Well,' he said quietly, "'perhaps you will call the nurse for me. There's no real need for her, but it's just as well we should have her on the spot.' Again Clodagh's eyes darkened with apprehension, but she made no remark. Signaling to Nance to follow her, she left the room. As the two girls disappeared, Gallagher bent again over Ashland, making another rapid examination. Then once more he glanced up at Milbank. "'He may not last the night,' he said below his breath. Molyneux expected that it wouldn't be a long business, but we didn't look for the change so soon as this. Milbank did not alter his position. "'You'll stay on, of course,' he said mechanically. "'Yes, oh, yes, I'll stay on.' As he said the last word, Clodagh reappeared. "'The nurse will be here in a minute,' she said in a steady voice. The unrelaxed, monotonous vigil lasted until two o'clock. Then, as Ashland showed a disposition to rally, the doctor asserted his authority and dismissed Mrs. Ashland, Nance, and Milbank for a much-needed rest, Clodagh alone refusing to leave the room. Though he would not have admitted it, the command came as a boon to Milbank. His long and arduous journey, coupled with the strain and excitement of the day and evening, had culminated in intense weariness, and when Gallagher's order came it would have been a superhuman effort to offer any protest. Reaching his room he took off his boots, and, partially undressing, threw himself upon his bed. How many hours he slept the deep sleep of utter exhaustion he did not know. His first effort at awaking consciousness was a thrill of nervous fright that made him sit up in bed, aware with a sudden shock that someone was knocking imperatively on his door and calling him by name in low, agitated tones. "'Mr. Milbank! Mr. Milbank! Wake, please! Quick! Mr. Milbank!' He stared into the darkness for an instant in dazed apprehension. Then he slid out of bed, fumbling blindly for his dressing-gown. 
"'Coming,' he called. "'Coming!' Having found the garment, he crossed the room, stumbling, thrusting his arms into the sleeves as he went. Opening the door, he realized the situation with a sick sinking of the heart. Clodagh stood in the corridor with a blanched face, holding a candle in her shaking hand. "'Oh, come, please!' she exclaimed. "'Come quick!' Without a word he stepped forward, and the two hurried down the passage. In the sick room the fire was glowing, and additional candles had been lighted. For a second Milbank paused at the door. Then, as his eyes grew accustomed to the axis of light, the scene became clear to him. On the bed lay Ashland, his head partly propped up by pillows, his eyes wide, his breath coming in slow, difficult gasps. Gallagher was moving about the room with more quickness and deftness than the Englishman could have believed possible. Mrs. Ashland, unnerved and yet fascinated, leaned upon the end of the bed, while Nance, crying silently, followed the nurse to and fro in dazed, half-comprehending fear, and Hannah, the household factotum, crouched behind the door, weeping and murmuring inarticulate prayers. The picture turned Milbank cold. With an instinctive gesture he paused with the intention of shielding it from Clodagh's sight, but at the very moment that he turned towards her a convulsion shook the dying man. He half lifted himself in bed, his eyes staring wildly. As Gallagher rushed forward a faint sound escaped him. His head fell forward, and his body collapsed in the doctor's arms. There was a breathless, appalled silence, a silence that seemed to extend over years. At last Gallagher looked up. "'It's all over,' he said in a hushed voice. For a minute no one spoke. No one moved. It seemed as if the whole room was petrified. Then Gallagher quietly laid the body back upon the pillows, and as though the action broke the spell, Clodagh gave a sudden sharp cry and ran forward to the bed. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 The three days that followed Ashland's death resolved themselves into so many hours of gloom and confusion that found their culmination in the funeral ceremony. To Irishmen of every class a funeral is invested with an almost symbolic importance, and a solemn consideration is bestowed upon its most minute details. As Milbank, deeply imbued with the horror and suddenness of the whole disaster, was filled with a growing astonishment at the numberless preliminaries, the amount of precedence and prestige requiring consideration, before one poor human body could be hidden away. But he rose dutifully to the occasion and proved himself unfailingly patient and conscientious in every emergency, from the first repugnant interview with the undertaker to the woeful breakfast partaken of in the early hours of the funeral morning with the curtains drawn across the dining-room windows and the candles in the massive silver sconces shedding an unnatural light upon the table laden with edibles. The guests who partook of this meal were men of varied and interesting types, but whatever their characteristic differences it was remarkable that the same air of responsibility and solemnity inspired them all. It did not matter that many of them had been personal enemies of the dead man, that many with that jealous distrust of unconventionality that reigns in Ireland had markedly drawn away from him in the last ten years of his life. Death had obliterated everything. 
ashland's eccentricities his lawlessness his contempt for the little world in which he lived were all forgotten he was one of themselves deserving in death at least the same consideration that the county had bestowed upon his father his grandfather and those who had gone before them the faces of these men were unfamiliar to milbank though each one on entering the dining-room shook him cordially and sympathetically by the hand the meal was partaken of almost in silence and it was with obvious relief that one after another the members of the party rose from table and passed into the darkened hall and from thence to the sweep of gravel drive that fronted the house where the less privileged of those who had come to do ashland honor lounged singly or in groups the funeral was time to start at nine but the concourse of mourners well accustomed to the delays inevitable on such an occasion evinced no sign of impatience when half-past nine and then ten arrived and no move had yet been made but all things come to those who understand the art of patience at a quarter past ten a thrill galvanized the lethargic crowd and with the recognition of the great moment for which they waited the men began to jostle each other and push forward towards the house while all hats were respectively removed a faint murmur of admiration and awe went up from the gathering as the great brass-bound coffin was borne solemnly through the door and laid upon the open bier in silence milbank and young lawrence ashland took their places as chief mourners and with the inevitable confusion and uncertainty of such a moment the crowd of men and vehicles formed up behind them the horses under the bier moved slowly forward and the body of dennis ashland passed for the last time down the avenue and through the gates of orristown the funeral over milbank walked back from carrigmore alone the servants who had followed their master to his resting-place in the old graveyard had remained in the village to enjoy the importance that the occasion lent them young ashland had disappeared at the conclusion of the burial service while the daughters and sister-in-law of the dead man in accordance with the custom of the country had remained secluded in their own rooms at orristown appearing neither at the breakfast nor the funeral in a house of death the hours that succeed the burial are if possible even more melancholy than those that precede it the sensations of awe and responsibility have been dispersed but as yet it is impossible to resume the commonplace routine of life as milbank passed through the gateway and walked at the drive ploughed into new furrows by the long procession of cars that had followed the coffin he was deeply sensitive to this impression and it fell upon him afresh with a chill of desolation as he entered the door still standing open and moved slowly across the deserted hall in the dining-room the curtains had been drawn back and the candles extinguished but the daylight seemed to fall tardily and unnaturally upon the room after its three days exclusion he stood for a moment looking at the debris of the breakfast that had not yet been removed at the disarray of chairs that had been hurriedly vacated then with a fresh and poignant sense of loss and loneliness he turned hastily and walked out of the room in the hall he attempted to put afresh but the sound of muffled sobbing from the upper portion of the house sent him incontinently forth into the open with an overwhelming desire for human fellowship for any companionship in this abode of desolation he passed without consideration of his dignity round the corner of the house 
in the direction of the stable-yard. He walked calmly, but there was a pucker of anxiety on his usually placid brow, an expression of concern apart from actual sorrow in his tightly set lips. To the most casual observer it would have been obvious that something weighed upon his mind. Still moving with his habitual precision, he entered the yard by the arched gateway, picking his way between the scattered array of rubbish, food, and implements that encumbered the ground. When he appeared, a dozen rough or glossy heads were thrust out of the kennels or outhouses as the dogs accorded him a noisy welcome. But paying only partial heed to their demonstrations, he passed on to the vast coach-house with a vague hope that some laborer connected with the farm or stables might possibly have been left behind in the general exodus. But here again he was doomed to disappointment. The coach-house, with its walls festooned with rotting harness, its ghostly row of cumbersome antiquated vehicles, was as empty of human presence as the yard itself. Conscious of the isolation that hung over the place, disproportionately aware of his own aimlessness, he stood uncertain in what direction to turn. For the moment the household had no need of him. There were no legal formalities to succeed the funeral, Ashland having left no will, and of personal duties he had none to claim his attention. He stood by the coach-house door woefully undecided as to his next move, when all at once relief came to him from the most unexpected quarter of the outbuildings. One of the dairy windows was opened sharply, and a head was thrust through the aperture. "'Wisha, what is it you're doing there, sir?' a voice demanded kindly. "'Sure that old yard is no fit place for you.' Turning hastily, Milbank saw the broad, plain face of Hannah, her small eyes red, her rough cheeks stained with weeping. "'Why, Hannah!' he exclaimed. "'What are you doing here?' I thought you were at the funeral. Hannah passed the back of her hand across her eyes. Wisha, what would I be doing at it? she demanded huskily. Sure, I don't know what they do be seeing in funerals at all. Milbank glanced up with interest, recognizing the originality of the remark. Why, you and I are of the same opinion, he said. The Celtic delight in the obsequies of a friend has been puzzling me for the last three days. Then he paused, suddenly conscious of Hannah's fixed regard. That is, he substituted quickly, that is, I have been wondering, like you, what they see in it. Hannah's small, observant eyes did not waver in their scrutiny. You've been wondering about something, sure enough, she said. I seen it meself every time I'd be carrying in the dinner and doing a turn for the poor corpse. God be good to him this holy and blessed day. Again she wiped her eyes. "'But tisn't wonderin' alone that's at you,' she added more briskly. "'Tis some other thing that's lyin' heavy on your mind. I seen it meself at every hand's turn.' Milbank started. This sympathetic onslaught was as disconcerting as it was unexpected. "'I—I I won't contradict you, Hannah,' he said waveringly. "'No doubt you are right.' For the space of a minute Hannah was profoundly silent. Then she broached the subject that had been filling her mind for a day and a half. "'Wishin' now, is it through what they do be tellin' me?' she asked softly and warily. "'That you're going to be father and mother and all to them two poor children?' Again Milbank started almost guiltily. Then the personal anxiety that mingled with and almost dominated his grief for Ashland 
rose irrepressibly in response to the persuasive tones, the kindly human interest and curiosity. "'Yes, Hannah,' he said quickly. "'Yes, it is my intention to try and fill my poor friend's place.' The tears welled suddenly into Hannah's eyes, and with an awkward movement she wiped her rough hand in her apron and held it out. "'God Almighty will give it back to you, sir,' she exclaimed with impulsive fervor. Strangely touched by the expression of understanding and appreciation, he responded to the gesture and took her hand. But instantly she withdrew it. "'Don't be minded an old woman like me, sir,' she said deprecatingly. "'Twas the thought of the children that come over me. I couldn't help it. I had the both of them in me arms before they could cry. Small wonder me heart would be in them. Many's the sad day I put over me thinking what would become of them with the poor master going to the bad. God forgive me for saying it, and sure now tis all settled and done for, and the heath of it off our minds. Praise be to God!' She paused to dry her tears. "'And what would you be thinking to do with them?' she asked presently, in a new and more personal tone. Milbank did not answer at once. His eyes strayed uneasily from one subject in the yard to another, while the frown of perplexity that had puckered his brow since Ashland's death reappeared more prominently than before. At last, with a certain expression of puzzled resolution, he looked up and met Hannah's attentive gaze. "'To tell you the truth, Hannah,' he said, "'that is the precise question I have been asking myself ever since your poor master died.' There was a wait of some seconds while his listener digested the information. Then she nodded her head with slow impressiveness. "'I seen it meself,' she said again. "'Sure I seen it as plain as daylight. There's something on his mind,' I says to meself. "'And if it isn't the poor master's death,' I says, "'then it's nothing more nor less than the natural feelings of a single gentleman that pimes himself with two grown daughters.' It was characteristic of Milbank that he did not smile. He recognized only one fact in the old servant's words, the fact that the state of affairs over which he had been worrying in lonely perplexity had suddenly been accurately, if roughly, voiced by someone else. He glanced up with quick relief into the round red face framed in the dairy window. "'Hannah,' he said honestly, "'your surmise was perfectly correct.' For the first time a smile broke out over her tear-stained face. "'I was right, then. Tis the children was troubling you.' A sharp gleam of inquiry shot from her eyes. "'Yes,' he said simply. "'And why now?' Again her tone changed, the irrepressible undercurrent of native humor, native inquisitiveness, and familiarity welling out unconsciously. "'Sure they be good children.' "'I do not doubt it. I do not doubt it for one moment. But they're troubling you all the same. Well, yes, yes, I confess they are troubling you. Both of them, she asked innocently. He hesitated. Well, no, he replied artlessly. No, not both of them. Ah, I thought that same. Hannah gave a nod of understanding. Sure, twas to be tormentin' men she was brought into the world for. I said so meself the first day I took her into me arms. But but I haven't said anything. How do you know that it is? How do I know that it's Miss Clodagh that's bothering you? Sure, how do I know that you're standing before me? Faith, by the use of me eyesight, 
haven't i seen you looking at her and pondering and looking at her again milbank's lips tightened and he drew himself up i should be sorry if any thought i have bestowed on your young mistress he began coldly then suddenly the intense need of help and sympathetic counsel overbalanced dignity hannah he said abruptly i'm in a terribly awkward position and that is the simple truth my mind is quite at rest about the younger girl she is a child and will be a child for years a good school is all she needs but with the other it's different with clodagh it's different clodagh is no longer a child hannah remained discreetly silent if i had a sister he went on or any friend to whom i could entrust her but i have none again hannah shook her head well then that's a pity she murmured sure tis lonesome for a gentleman to be by himself it is a pity a great pity you do not know how it is weighing upon me of course there is her aunt hannah made an exclamation of horror is it mrs lawrence she cried is it tie her to mrs lawrence you would sure you may as well put her in the grave and be done with it milbank's harassed face grew more perplexed no he said hurriedly no i understand that that arrangement is impossible i was merely wondering whether there is any other any more distant relative with whom she might be happy he looked anxiously into her broad shrewd face for a moment the small eyes met his seriously then involuntarily they twinkled faith when i was a young woman sir she said slowly men wasn't so sat on finding relations for a girl like miss clodagh unless maybe twas a relation of their own making milbank suddenly looked away what what do you mean he asked confusedly why that tisn't aunts and cousins that a girl like miss clodagh wants but a good husband a uh, a husband why then what else instead of troubling yourself and fretting yourself until your heart is scalded out of you why don't you marry her that's what i've been asking myself ever since the poor master died it's out now if i'm to be killed for it she eyed him almost defiantly but milbank stood stammering and confused his eyes fixed nervously on the ground an unaccustomed flush on his worn cheeks but but hannah i-i am an old man his tone was deprecating and meant to be ironic but unconsciously it had an undernote of question unconsciously as he raised his eyes to his mentor's face he straightened the shoulders that age and study had combined to bend i am an old man he said again why why i am five years older than her father hannah continued to search his face and sure what harm is that she said wasn't me own poor man as old as me grandfather and no woman ever buried a finer husband god rest him milbank's lack of humorous imagination stood him in good stead but she's a child he stammered a child for answer hannah leant out of the window until her face was close to his listen here to me she said softly child or no child you thought about marrying her before ever i said it but you'd never risk the courage to do it you're not like the ashlands that would tear down the walls of hell if they wanted to be gettin at the devil you'd like somebody to take him by the hand and draw him out nice and aisy for you there she is in that lonesome house frettin her heart and cryin her eyes out why can't you go up and take her before somebody else does as she came to the last words 
her voice dropped. Her loyalty to her dead master, her anxiety to see his child in a place of safety, poured from her in crude eloquence. To her primitive mind, Milbank appeared as the ideal husband, a man of dependable years, of wealth, of good social position, and all her affections, all her energies yearned to make the marriage. She could not have framed the fear that possessed her, but her instinct, her acute native intuition, warned her unanswerably that the daughter of Dennis Ashland would need protection, and would need it before long. With an impulsive gesture she stretched out her hand, and touching Milbank's shoulder, pushed him gently forward into the yard. "'Go on, sir,' she urged softly. "'Go on up and take her before somebody else does.'" End of Chapter 5 Chapter 6 It may be surmised without fear of misconception that never during the smooth course of his uneventful existence had Milbank been so rudely shaken into self-comprehension as by Hannah's unlooked-for onslaught. Left to the placid guidance of unaided instinct, it is almost certain that he would have left Orristown whenever the hour of departure arrived, innocently unconscious that any parting pangs could be attributed to a personal cause. It is possible that, with the passage of time, he might have acknowledged that somewhere in the inner recesses of his mind there was a shrine where one face, more changeful and alluring than any other he had known, reigned in solitary state. But beyond that tardy acknowledgment he would not have dared to venture. Later still, perhaps, if circumstances had compelled him to resign his guardianship over Clodagh in favor of some possible husband, it is well within the bounds of reason to conjecture that understanding of his feelings might have come to him when, having said good-bye to the young girl just crossing the threshold of life, he returned to his home, newly and bitterly alive to his age and loneliness. But now, in the light of present events, all such suppositions had become valueless. As if by some powerful outside pressure his eyes had been opened, and he stood dazed and elated before the new road then opened upon his vision. His brain felt light and unsteady, his limbs were imbued with a sensation of unaccustomed buoyancy as he turned, impelled by Hannah's words, and moved across the yard towards the arched gateway. A half-admitted intoxicating sense of imminent action possessed him, and as he walked forward it seemed that he scarcely felt the ground beneath his feet. Almost without volition he passed from the stone-paved courtyard into the sweep of graveled pathway that fronted the house. For the first time in his existence he was conscious of being borne forward on the tide of his emotions, and the knowledge had an exhilarating, unbalanced daring that suggested youth. As though he feared the evaporation of his mood, he made no pause on gaining the pathway, but went straight forward towards the house with a haste and impetuosity very foreign to his formal nature. On his second entry into the hall he paid no heed to the chill desolation of the place, but crossing the intervening space began immediately to mount the stairs. Scarcely had he reached the highest step, however, than he halted incontinently, for as though in direct response to the thoughts that were filling his mind a door on the corridor opened and Clodagh appeared. Seeing him, she too paused, and in the moment of mutual hesitation 
he had opportunity to study her. In her new black dress she looked slighter and more immature than he had expected, and the pathetic effect of her appearance was enhanced by the paleness of her face and the heavy purple shadows that sleeplessness and tears had traced below her eyes. As the impression obtruded itself upon him his own nervous excitement dropped from him suddenly. "'My poor child,' he said involuntarily. At the words and the tone she turned to him impulsively. "'Oh, Mr. Milbank,' she began. Then her loneliness, her sense of bereavement and desolation inundated her mind. With a short sob she moved abruptly away, and turning her face to the wall broke into a passion of tears. The action was the action of a child, and without hesitation Milbank responded to it. Stepping across the corridor, he put his arm about her shoulder and drew her gently towards the stairs. "'Come,' he said soothingly, "'come. The house is quite quiet, and you are badly in want of a little daylight and fresh air. Come, let me take you out.' Clodagh sobbed on, but she suffered herself to be led down the stairs and across the hall towards the open door. There, however, she paused, newly arrested by her grief. "'Oh, Mr. Milbank,' she cried, "'I can't believe it. I can't believe that we'll never see him again. Poor father! Oh, poor father!' But Milbank was equal to the situation. "'You must be brave,' he said kindly. "'You must remember that he would like you to be brave.' The words were an inspiration. With marvelous efficacy they checked the torrent of Clodagh's tears. For a moment she stood looking at him in a dazed, uncertain way. Then she lifted her head in a pathetic attempt at decisive action. "'You are right,' she said unevenly. "'He would like to know that I was brave.' The declaration seemed to cost her an immense effort, for instantly it was made she turned away from Milbank, freeing herself from his detaining arm, and as though fearing to trust herself to any further onrush of emotion she stepped through the open door and walked quickly forward to where the gravel drive merged into the long and narrow glen in which the Orristown woods met the sea. Down the wide track leading to this glen she walked, with head rigidly erect and resolutely set lips, while Millbank followed. Now that the immediate need for his protection had been removed, his mind involuntarily reverted to his earlier and more tumultuous thoughts. With a strange half-timid excitement he acknowledged the personal element in his surroundings, and exulted with a certain tremulous joy in the keen air that blew inland from the sea, in the pleasant earthy smell of the moss that clothed the rough stones of the boundary wall skirting the path, in the promise of spring suggested by the hardy green of the wild violet plants clustering at the roots of the beech-trees and with his eyes fixed upon Clodagh's slim black figure, he walked forward in the vaguely intoxicating dream. For the full course of the path she went on steadily, but reaching the glen she paused, and there, as if by a prearrangement of destiny, Millbank overtook her. With a quiet, unostentatious movement he stepped to her side and stood looking upon the scene that spread before them. The view was not imposing, but it was beautiful with the brooding solemn beauty that emanates from Ireland. Upon one hand the sea stretched away green, invincible, and cold as it so often looks in early spring, 
Upon the other the woods lay a mass of leafless interlacing boughs that formed a clean brown silhouette against the grey sky, while directly in front the first undulation of the rugged forest town cliffs stood up, an impregnable rampart against the outer world. For a long silent moment Clodagh surveyed the picture. Then, with one of the impulsive unstudied gestures that were so characteristic of her, she looked round, and for the first time since they had left the house her eyes rested on Milbank's face. "'You are very kind to me,' she said suddenly. "'Why are you so kind?' The words, spoken with complete ingenuousness, came at a singularly appropriate moment. To Milbank, nervously conscious of his own emotions, they seemed inspired. With a quick unsteady gesture he wheeled round, and putting out his hand, caught hers. It, it is easy to be kind to some people, he said almost inarticulately. Clodagh looked at him in some surprise, but it did not occur to her to withdraw her hand. She stood perfectly calm and unembarrassed, and presently, as he made no attempt at further speech, her glance wandered back to the cool stretch of green water. Yes, she said slowly, I suppose it is easy to be nice to some people, but not to selfish people like me. At her words, Milbank's hand tightened abruptly. You must not say that, he murmured. I have never seen any faults in your character. And even, even if I had, his voice quickened confusedly, even if I had seen them, you would still be the, the child of my oldest friend. He spoke disjointedly and agitatedly, but at his words Clodagh turned to him afresh with a grateful, impulsive movement. "'Ah, then I understand,' she said warmly. "'You are very kind. You are very good.' At her movement and her tone a mental giddiness seized upon Milbank. A flush rose to his temples. "'Clodagh,' he said suddenly, "'let me be kind to you always. Let, let me marry you and be kind to you always.' The appeal came forth with volcanic suddenness. He had not meant to be precipitate. It was entirely alien to his slow, methodical nature to plunge headlong into any situation. But the occasion was unprecedented. Circumstances overwhelmed him. For a long space he stood as if transfixed, his eyes straining to catch the expression on Clodagh's face, his pale, ascetic features puckered with anxiety. The pause was long, preternaturally long. Clodagh stood as motionless as he, her hand still resting passive in his clasp, her clear eyes staring into his in stupefied amazement. It was plainly evident that no realization of the declaration just made had penetrated her understanding. To her mind, unattuned even vaguely to the idea of love, and temporarily numbed by her grief, the thought that her father's friend could consider her in any light but that of a child was too preposterous, too unreal to come spontaneously. The belief that Milbank's extraordinary words but needed some explanatory addition held her attentive and expectant, and under this conviction she stood unconscious of his close regard and unembarrassed by the pressure of his hand. At last, as some shadowy perception of her thoughts obtruded itself upon him, he stirred nervously, and the flush upon his face deepened. "'Clodagh,' he said, 
have I made myself plain? Do you understand that I... that I wish to marry you? That I want you for my... my wife? The final word, with its intense incongruity, cut suddenly through the mist of her bewilderment. In a flash of comprehension the meaning of his declaration sprang to her mind. Her face turned red, then pale. With a sharp movement she drew away her hand. "'You want to marry me?' she said in a slow, amazed voice. Before the note of blank, undisguised incredulity, Milbank shrank into himself. "'Yes,' he said hurriedly. "'Yes, that is my desire. I know that perhaps it may, may seem incongruous. You are very young, and I—' He hesitated with a painful touch of embarrassment. At the hesitation Clodagh's voice broke forth. "'But I don't want to marry,' she cried. "'I don't want to marry anyone.' There was a sharp, half-frightened note audible in her voice. For the moment her whole attitude was that of the inexperienced being who clings instinctively to the rock of present things and obstinately refuses to be cast into the sea of future possibilities. For the moment she was blind to the instrument that was forcing her towards those possibilities. To her immature mind it was the choice between the known and the unknown. Then suddenly and accidentally her eyes came back to Milbank's face, and the personal element in the choice assailed her abruptly. "'Oh, I couldn't!' she cried involuntarily. "'I couldn't! I couldn't!' She did not intend to hurt him, but cruelty is the prerogative of the young, and she failed to see that he winced before the decisive honesty of her words. "'Am I so... so very distasteful?' he asked in a low, unsteady voice. She looked at him in silence. It was the inevitable clash of youth and age. She was warm-hearted. She was capable of generous action. But before all else she was young, the triumphant inheritor of the ages. Life stretched before her while it lay behind him. She looked at him, and as she looked a wave of revolt, a strong sudden sense of her individual right to happiness surged through her. "'Oh, I couldn't!' she cried again. "'I couldn't!' And before Milbank could reply, before he had time to comprehend the purport of her words, she had turned and fled in the direction of the house, leaving him standing as he was, dazed and petrified. Upward along the path Clodagh ran. Her impulse towards flight had been childish, and her thoughts as she sped forward were as unreasonable and confused as a child's. She was vaguely, blindly filled with the desire to escape from she knew not what, to evade she knew not what. Her one clear thought was that the prop upon which she had leaned in these days of sorrow and despair had unaccountably and suddenly been withdrawn, and that she stood woefully alone and unprotected. On she ran until the archway of the courtyard broke into view. Then, without a moment's hesitation, she swerved to the left, sped across the yard, and burst unceremoniously into the kitchen. In the kitchen Hannah was busying herself over the fire that, in the confusion of the morning's event, had been suffered to die down. At the tempestuous opening of the door she turned sharply round, and for a second stood staring at the disturbed face of her young mistress. Then, with the intuitive tact of her race, she suddenly opened her ample arms, and with a sob Clodagh rushed towards her. 
for a long moment hannah held her as if she had been a baby patting her shoulder and smoothing her ruffled hair while she cried out her grief and bewilderment at last with a slow sobbing breath she raised her head oh hannah i want father she said i want father hannah drew her closer to her broad shoulder whist now she murmured tenderly whist now sure he's better off sure he's better off but clodagh's mind was too agitated to take comfort with a change of mental attitude she altered her physical position freeing herself abruptly from hannah's embrace hannah she cried suddenly mr milbank wants me to marry him and i won't i can't i won't hannah's eyes narrowed sharply but whatever her emotion she checked it and bent over her charge with another caress sure you won't of course my lamb who'd be asking you no one then why would you be frettin yourself i'm not frettin myself only only what only oh nothin nothin with a distressed movement clodagh pushed back her hair from her forehead then she turned to the old servant afresh hannah she demanded why does he want to marry me why does he want to hannah was silent for a space then her shrewd ugly face puckered into an expression of profound wisdom men are queer she said oracularly the older the queerer maybe he's thinking of himself in the matter but maybe her voice dropped impressively maybe miss clodagh tis the way he's thinking of you she paused with deep significance the effort after effect was not wasted clodagh looked up sharply what do you mean she asked mane hannah turned away and picking up a poker began softly to rake the ashes from the fire sure what would i be manin but you do mean something what is it hannah went on with her task clodagh stamped her foot hannah what is it nothing sure nothing at all i'm only saying what queer notions men takes but you mean something else what is it hannah stolidly continued to rake out the remnants of the fire i know nothing she said obstinately ask mrs lawrence what you do i know by your voice what is it an alert unconscious note of apprehension had crept into clodagh's tone her lips suddenly tightened her eyes became wide what is it hannah she exclaimed what's the reason he wants to marry me sure no reason at all oh clodagh made a gesture of anger and disgust then she made a fresh appeal hannah please but hannah went on with her work years of shrewd observation had taught her the power of silence then you won't tell me there was no response hannah at last the old servant turned as though pressed beyond endurance well she said with seeming reluctance maybe he'd be thinkin twould be easier for one of the ashlands to be drawn out of her husband's pocket than to be but clodagh interrupted she turned suddenly her cheeks burning her eyes ablaze hannah she cried in sharp pained alarm but hannah had had her say with her old imperturbable gesture she turned once more to her task i know nothing she murmured obstinately if you're wantin more ask mrs lawrence for a while clodagh stood transfixed by the idea presented to her mind then action and uncertainty becoming suddenly indispensable she turned on her heel 
"'Very well,' she said tersely. "'Very well. I will ask Aunt Fan.' And, with as scant ceremony as she had entered it, she swept out of the kitchen. As the door banged, Hannah glanced over her shoulder, her red face brimming with tenderness. "'Wisha, tis all for the best,' she murmured aloud. "'Tis all for the best. But God forgive me for hurting a hair of her head.' With feet that scarcely felt the ground beneath them, Clodagh sped along the stone passages that led to the hall, and from thence ascended to the bedrooms. Her senses were acutely alive, her mind alert with an unbearable apprehension. A new dread that, by the power of intuition, had almost become a certainty, impelled her forward without the conscious action of her will. Without any hesitancy or indecision, she traversed the long corridor, and, pausing before the room occupied by her aunt, knocked peremptorily upon the door. After a moment's wait, Mrs. Ashland's querulous voice was raised in response. "'Well?' she asked. "'What is it? Who's there?' "'Clodagh.' There was an audible sigh, and the usual, "'Come in,' followed somewhat tardily. Clodagh instantly turned the handle and opened the door. In this room the blinds had not yet been drawn up, and only a yellowish light filtered in from outside. In the grate a fire burned unevenly, and close beside sat Mrs. Ashland, a cup of tea in her hand, a black woolen shawl wrapped about her shoulders. As her niece entered she glanced round irritably, drawing the wrap more closely round her. "'Shut the door, Clodagh,' she said. "'I hate these big drafty houses.' Clodagh obeyed in silence, then, walking deliberately across the room, paused by her aunt's chair. Her face was still burning, her heart was beating unpleasantly fast. "'And Fran,' she said, I want to ask you something. Why should Mr. Milbank bother about me, about us?" Mrs. Ashland, startled by the suddenness of the unlooked-for attack, turned in her seat and peered through the yellow twilight into her niece's excited face. "'What on earth is the matter with you, child?' she demanded. "'Nothing, but I want to know.' Mrs. Ashland made a gesture tantamount to shrugging her shoulders. "'It is quite natural that Mr. Milbank should be interested in you.' He was your father's oldest friend. Yes, yes, Clodagh bent forward uncontrollably. And, and, Fan, has father died poor? Has he left us debts? That's what I want to know. Mrs. Ashland moved nervously in her chair. My dear child, she began weakly, has he? Oh, and, Fan, has he left debts? Mrs. Ashland was taken at a disadvantage. Well, she stammered, well, he has left debts? "'Well, yes, if you must know, he has.' Clodagh caught her breath. "'Of course, as I often said,' Mrs. Ashland continued, "'poor Dennis was a terribly improvident man.' But Clodagh checked her. "'Don't,' she said faintly. "'I could bear it just to-day. Are the debts big?' "'Immense.' Mrs. Ashland made the reply sharply. She was not an ill-natured woman, but her sense of dignity had been hurt. As the word was spoken, Clodagh swayed a little. The black cloud of vague liabilities that hangs over so many Irish houses had suddenly descended upon her. In the consequent shock it seemed that the ground rocked under her feet. After a moment she steadied herself. "'Must the place go?' she asked in an intensely quiet voice. "'Yes, at least.' "'What?' 
it would have had to go only—only for what? In her keen anxiety Clodagh stepped forward and laid her hand on her aunt's shoulder. Only for what, Aunt Fan? Shaken and unnerved at the interrogation, Mrs. Ashland sat up with a start. "'Why do you do that, Clodagh?' she cried. "'Why do you do that? You gave me a palpitation of the heart.' But Clodagh's eyes still burned with inquiry. "'Why won't the place have to go?' she demanded. "'How will the debts be paid?' Mrs. Ashland freed herself nervously from her niece's hand. "'Mr. Milbank will pay them,' she said impulsively. Then instantly she checked herself. "'Oh, what have I said?' she exclaimed. "'Don't pretend that I told you, Clodagh. He is so particular that you shouldn't know.' But Clodagh scarcely heard. Her hand had dropped to her side, and she stood staring blankly at her aunt. "'You mean to say that he's going to pay father's debts? Our debts? Yes, he even wants to put the place into good repair. Poor Dennis seems to have cast a perfect spell over him. Then we'll owe him something we can never possibly repay.' Mrs. Ashland drew herself up. "'Not exactly owe,' she corrected. "'It is an, an act of friendship.' The Ashlands have never been indebted to anyone for a favor. Of course Mr. Milbank is a wealthy man, and it's easy to be generous when you have money. She heaved a sigh. But Clodagh stood staring vacantly at the opposite wall. "'It's a debt all the same,' she said after a long pause. "'I suppose it is what father used to call a debt of honor. She spoke in a slow, mechanical voice. Then, as if moved to action by her train of thought, she turned without waiting for her aunt's comment and walked out of the room. Traversing the corridor, she descended the stairs and passed straight to the hall door. Once in the open, she wheeled to the right with a steady, deliberate movement and began slowly to retrace the steps she had taken nearly half an hour earlier. Steadily and unemotionally she went forward, skirting the courtyard, until at the dip of the path the glen came into view, and with it Milbank's precise black figure, standing exactly as she had seen it last. The fact caused her no surprise. That he should still be there seemed the natural, the anticipated thing, and without any pause, any moment of hesitation or delay, she moved directly towards him. As she reached his side her cheeks were hot, her heart was still beating unevenly, and, absorbed by her own emotion, she failed to see the dejected droop of his shoulders, the slight pathetic suggestion of his age in his bent back. Her footsteps were scarcely audible on the damp earth, and she was close beside him before he became conscious of her presence. As he did so, however, he started violently, and the blood rushed incontinently over his forehead and cheeks. Clodagh, he stammered but Clodagh checked him, laying her hand quickly on his arm. "'Mr. Milbank,' she said hurriedly, "'will you forgive me for what I said? I want to take it back. I want to say that, if you still like, I—I I will marry you.'" End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com